Amen. Good morning, men. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. I want to begin this morning by reading a passage from um, C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. This is from um, Prince Caspian. Uh, if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis or The Chronicles of Narnia, it's an allegory wherein uh, the lion, whose name is Aslan, represents Jesus Christ. And uh, the characters, at first, in the first, it's just the four uh, siblings, and then, you know, more are added as the series progresses. But the humans in the, the story represent the Christian. And so you have Aslan, the Christian. You have, or I'm sorry, Aslan, the Savior. And then you have the, the, the humans, which are the Christians. And then you have these two worlds, you know, Narnia, and then just kind of the physical, regular world. And this, it represents the spirit realm, um, and the in the natural realm, and so uh, this this excerpt concerns one of the characters, the humans. His name is Eustace, and at one point in the Chronicles, he uh, kind of falls into temptation and he turns into a dragon. And uh, and then when he realizes what he's done to himself through his sin, he um, has an encounter with Aslan, who represents Christ. And, uh, and this, this little excerpt represents the interaction between the dragon, this human sinner, and the, the lion, the savior. And so, so I, I read you this. It says that um, I, and the, I, the, the Eustace, is the, char- the dragon is the one who's speaking, so he's the I. He says, I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of it, too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off, for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the other two, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. 
I was afraid his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just laid flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever been picked, or if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like a billy. But oh, it's so fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscle and they're pretty moldy compared with Caspian's, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same as I've got on now, as a matter of fact. An incredible illustration that speaks to us concerning the passage of Scripture that we find ourselves in here in Romans chapter 6 this morning um, as, we, as we cross into this most amazing uh, chapter. In chapter 5, the words were given to us and they're almost hidden in the chapter and you can almost read right over them and miss them. Where Paul said, uh, concerning this grace that we have, that the Holy Ghost has been given to us. The Holy Spirit. Jesus said that if I go away, I will send another helper unto you, and he will abide with you forever. And he identified the helper as the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to give you another helper of the same sort. He'll be just like me. In fact, he'll be me in spirit form, and he'll be given to you. Concerning this Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, Jesus would also say that without me, you can do nothing. We can do absolutely nothing in ourselves apart from the person of the Holy Spirit. Just like Eustace in the, the allegory was able to peel off the layer that was most exposed of his dragon scales of the knobbiness of his own flesh. But he wasn't able to ultimately rid himself of the source of what that knobbiness and that scaliness was. He could take off the outer layer, but he couldn't change where it was coming from on the inside. That required a deeper work. It required someone else. It required the help of an outside agent to do something that's impossible for an individual to do them on their own. And so the Holy Spirit is promised. Now, when Jesus saved us, he did not save us by excusing our sin. He didn't do it by tolerating our sin and just kind of looking the other way or pardoning our sin, 
even though it exists yet because he's God, he can just pretend it doesn't. He didn't accept our sin when he saved us, and he doesn't ignore our sin. He must remove our sin in order for him to save us. And that's what the work of the cross was all about. The work of the cross was the judgment of sin. Our sin was judged on Jesus Christ. And so the blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us from all sin. And once we're cleansed from our sin, now we're declared righteous by God. He calls us righteous because of the blood of Christ. He looks at us. He sees forgiveness. He sees a clean slate. Our sin is gone. It's washed away. That's called positional righteousness. We have been called, declared, positioned as righteous people before God. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and our eternity is secured. All of that is done because of the blood. Now, that deals with the sin. That deals with the offense. That deals with the transgression and its penalty. But the reality underneath the position is that on the practical side of things, I'm still a sinner. I still have these dragon scales. I might be accepted and loved and washed in the positional sense, but practically there's still sin in my life. And does God now that I'm saved, does he just ignore that? Does he just pardon it and pretend it doesn't exist? Does he excuse it? Does he allow me to just continue on living in the filth of the old man because now I'm saved? Is that the way this whole thing's worked? What about the practical side of righteousness? I know I'm positionally saved, but what about my behavior now? What about the fact that I'm wearing this terrible dragon skin that I don't know what to do about it? Well, that's where the Holy Spirit now comes in. The blood is for justification, atonement. We heard that word at the end of chapter 5. Through Christ, we have now received the atonement. Atonement means at one meant. Let's just break the word up. Atonement. At one. We are at one meant. At one with God. That's what the blood does. But now the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to change us from the inside out so that what we are in our behavior matches what we've been called because of the blood. So practical righteousness must catch up with positional righteousness. And thus we come to chapter 6. In fact, chapters 6 through 8, 6, 7, and 8, all deal with the transformation now of my heart. Chapters 1 through 5 dealt with the transformation of my position. I'm saved. But now the transformation of my heart on the other side, practical righteousness. And so we begin in chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says this, What shall we say then? Now again, he's building. So this connects what he finished in chapter 5 with what he's about to say in chapter 6. He said in chapter 5 that we are righteous. We're sinless in God's eyes. But what shall we say then? Shall we now continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? In other words, I've been saved by grace, my sins have been pardoned, so can I now just continue living in those sins because, hey, where sin abounds, grace abounds, and so I might as well just keep going in, in my sins? And Paul says, absolutely not. That's just a, a foolish type of logic. 
Now, you can take these two verses and you can take two different Christians and they'll read this verse in two different ways. There'll be one Christian or professing Christian that will read these verses and the attitude of their heart is that they want to continue in their sin. They like their sin. They don't want to give up their sin. They want eternal life. They want to escape hell. They want heaven, but they don't want to give up their sin. And so that Christian will come to this verse and they'll think, wow, I've been saved by grace. The blood has washed it away. And so, wow, I can keep on living the way that I was living. And the blood of Christ just forgives me. God is gracious and and God is grace and God is love. And so he's just going to accept me in spite of my sin. And I can just keep on going. I can keep living in my sin. And to that person, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. You can't just continue in sin because you're saying that grace abounds. God forbid. But there's a second type of Christian that reads these verses also. And that Christian is on a completely different end of the spectrum. That Christian hates their sin. They see it for what it is. They know it for what it is. They've smelled it up close and personal. They've seen the destruction and the damage that it faces. And that Christian struggle is not that they want to continue in sin. That Christian struggle is that they can't get free from their sin. They want to be free from it, and yet they find that they're held by it. And if they could escape, they would, but they've tried every which way to peel away the dragon skin, and they found themselves unable to do it. And so for the one Christian that loves their sin, these verses bring disappointment. Oh, I can't continue in my sin. I'm going to have to give it up. I'm going to have to figure out a way and I'm going to have to get free from it. And they're disappointed by these verses. But the other type of Christian, the one that hates their sin and wants to be free from it, these two verses give that Christian hope. Because what Paul is declaring here is not that we must try really hard and get, get ourselves free from our sin, but he's also saying that, listen, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. Listen, if God can set me free positionally and I can't set myself free, then that must also mean that God is willing to come behind the blood with the Spirit and do something in me that I can't do myself to set me free from my sin as well. I don't have to continue in sin any longer. God has made a way whereby I can be set free from it and I don't have to live under the bondage of sin and the old man and death any longer and it brings hope. Now he explains how that works. Verse 3. He says, Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, there's two sacraments in the Bible that Jesus has told us that we are to um, observe. One is baptism and the other one is communion. And Paul here is talking about this rite of baptism. And we've all seen it, hopefully we've all done it, where we go into the water, we have decided that we're going to follow Christ, and we make a public confession of our faith in Jesus Christ and of our life to live under his lordship. And with that profession, we are then dunked under the water, 
And in that going under the water, it is the symbol of, the, of dying with Christ. My old life, my old man, everything I am up to that point is dying and being buried in the waters of those baptisms. And then when I come up out of the water, it's a symbolic gesture or testimony of the resurrected life now coming up and living after the Lord according to the power of his Holy Spirit and not according any longer to myself. Paul said it the best in Galatians 3.20 where he said, I am crucified with Christ under the water. Nevertheless, I live out of the water and now yet not I, it's no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 3.20. That's what baptism is, and that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, if you've been baptized into Christ, then you have died with him. Now, sin and death always go together. They're two links on the same chain, and they're mutually dependent on one another. They go together. And in that we sinned, original sin, we are chained to, to death by sin. But if you can break one of the links of those chains, then you can be set free from the law of sin and death. And what Paul is saying here is that in your baptism, the link of death has been broken. Because we are now alive with Christ. We died with him, and therefore death was broken when we rose up out of those waters. And because of that, the chain of sin and death is broken. It is effectively broken in Christ. Therefore, he says, and he says it in verse 4 here, we also should walk in newness of life. Now, what's walk? The walk is the action part of what we do, right? In the Bible, walk in the Spirit. It's our action. Paul says in another place that we should walk no longer in the old things, speaking of our lifestyle, the way that we live. And so our walk is our action, and what he's saying now is that the resurrection power that we receive in the waters of baptism should result in the walk of our life. There's a newness of life now within us. We walk in newness of life. And here's why, verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection knowing that our old man is crucified with him. That's the old life of the flesh. It's crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that from now on we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. In other words, what God has done in the cross has not made a new command for us to cleanse ourselves from the sins of our flesh, But he has produced power that we should walk in freedom from sin, that it no longer have dominion over our lives. It no longer has to govern the things that we do. And so we can walk in the whole thing. And so now the proclamation that he makes concerning all of this in verse 8. Notice the proclamation of the conclusion concerning this new life. He says now, and that's a present tense thing, and that's true for every one of us that's here right now. Now, if we be dead with Christ, and so that means for every one of us here right now, if we are in Christ, if we have been baptized into him, and therefore we have died with him now, right now, today, then we believe that we shall also live with him. And again, that's right now, present tense, alive in Christ. 
knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. Death does not reign, nor does it have a hold upon Christ, and therefore death does not have a hold upon us. The chain of sin and death has been broken. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. So in that Jesus has overcome and we are in him, we also now are overcomers in him. Have you ever heard the, 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 um, the story about the elephant in the circus? And um, one time the, the circus master was asked how he trains the elephant uh, and keeps him you know, from running away. And he said, it's actually quite simple. He said, the elephant is way stronger than any human force. It's stronger than anything that, that we can, you know, try to bind it with or do for it. If it wanted to, the elephant absolutely could get away. But what we do to the elephants is that when they're first born, from the very earliest days of their life, we put a, an anklet, a chain around their ankle, and then we stake that chain to the ground. And he says that young wild elephant comes to and, and tries with everything he's got to get free from that chain, but it isn't strong enough yet because it's still in its infancy, and so that chain holds it. Well, eventually, the will of the elephant is broken, and he resigns himself to the fact that he's chained to a stake in the ground. And he said, from that point, as soon as the elephant stops trying to get away from the stake in the ground, we no longer have to put a stake in the ground. All we have to do is put a cufflink around its ankle. And as long as it has that cufflink, it assumes it doesn't have the strength to get away from whatever's chained to its leg. And he says, and we've got him. And essentially, what Paul is saying here is that you and I, from the time of our first birth, we've been chained to sin. And all our life, we try to get away from it. We try to be free of it. We try not to be affected by it. But as hard as we try, we can't get it. But what Paul is saying to us now is that in Jesus Christ, that chain has been broken. And if you aren't getting away from sin, it's not because you can't. It's just because you won't. And it's because you aren't. He has provided every bit of power and every bit of supply and resource for us to be absolutely free from all sin. We have been raised together with Christ. And God is not a liar. And the same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, the Bible declares that that spirit is now also in us. And therefore, we have the ability to live the resurrected life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, He's the one that supplies that power, just as in our illustration at the beginning, it was Aslan the lion who tore away with finality the dragon scales of Eustace and turned him into a boy again. Interesting illustration, isn't it? How he was able to pick away layer by layer and that without much pain and much pleasure at the first, but then only to be frustrated to realize that it was back yet again. And yet when Aslan finally did it, all he did was lay down and surrender. And he said it hurt a lot more, and he was a lot smaller on the other side than he thought he had been previously. You know, but then there was freedom in the whole thing, and he rejoiced in, in, in what was done to him. And it is true that God is the one that ultimately sets us free from our sins. It is not we ourselves. We are not called to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps and try a little bit harder and reform ourselves one more time and put the proper accountability measures into place and, you know, with all of our effort and, and gumption, employ this power in our own might because we don't have the power in our own might. It's all in him. However, we do have a part to play. How many times do we use the phrase, it's a relationship, not a religion? Amen. It's a relationship, not a religion. And we know that that's our, that's our 
our life, right, is our relationship with God. But a relationship works two ways, doesn't it? There's an initiator and there's a responder. There is one and then there is another in a relationship and thus it is with God. And yes, he is the one that does the work in us to set us free, but we also do have a part to play, don't we? And seeing the change and seeing things happen within our lives. James would put it this way. He would say, faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. That's right. Faith without works is dead. And he says that even Satan says he believes, and yet he's not truly saved. It isn't just me saying that I believe, but that there in my faith must be an action that follows my faith, that complements my faith, that empowers my faith, that brings forth the result. So faith and works together. Paul would say to the Philippian church, it's actually Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, I put it in the wrong place. Go figure. It's the one where he says, work out your own salvation. Here it is. He says, wherefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed always, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God, listen, which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do you see how there's relationship in that? He says to you, you and me right now, he says, work out your own salvation. That means that there's something that I'm to exercise, something that I'm to do. There's an action in the whole thing. But yet at the same time, I'm called to do. He says, it is God that's working in you to will and to do. So meaning God's given me the power. He's given me the tools. He's given me the resources, but he still calls me to do. He doesn't leave me without responsibility in the whole thing. So the question is then, what is my responsibility when it comes to this concept of being free from sin, of no longer walking in the old lusts of my old life, of the old man? How do I do it? What are the ways? Well, what Paul gives to us here is he gives us five things in the remainder of the chapter in chapter 6, five things that we are to do the way that we reckon or the way that we uh, rather um, crucify or put out or see the old man put away and done away within our lives. So what are they? What are the things that Paul says that we are to do now so that we can be free? We can move from just positional righteousness to being practically righteous. How does it work? Number one, he gives us to in verse 11. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing foundational to you and I being free from sin and seeing the bondage of sin gone from our lives forever is that we must first reckon it to be so. Now, if you've been going along with us in these studies of Romans, you know this word reckon well. It was used 11 times back in chapter 4. It's the Greek word logizomahi. It means to impute. It means to count or account something, to be so. It means to render it a certain way. And so what he's essentially saying here is that the mindset, the thought pattern, my perspective concerning my position is that the power of sin is broken and gone and done away in my life. There's a lot of people that use um, various programs 
um, addictive type things to pro, type programs to get free of certain, certain things. We hear about 12 step programs. We hear about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and all these things. And, and I, you know, in and of themselves, I have no problem with those things. Anything that's going to help somebody, uh, to, 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 to stop destroying their lives. And if it works, I'm, I'm all for it. But here's the problem that I have, um, with those types of programs is that they deny the truth of verse 11. Because one of the very first things that, that, you know, when they talk about, you know, um, coming to terms with your, you know, problem is, is just the confession of it. And so, uh, you know, someone who has been free maybe of drugs or alcohol or something for 10 years, they'll, they'll stand up and the first thing they'll say is their name is and they'll say, I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. And what the Apostle Paul would say to that is absolutely not. That might be true in the worldly sense. That might be true in someone who's outside of Christ. But in Jesus Christ, that is not true. In Jesus Christ, he says, you reckon yourselves indeed to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. When's the last time you heard a corpse say that they were an alcoholic? Never. (laughs) Or an addict. Or they had a sex problem or something. Or they had an anger management issue. When's the last time you heard a corpse curse out of the casket because it, you know, didn't like the way it was dressed or something. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a foolish illustration, but no, that corpse is a corpse. It's dead. And what Paul is saying is that we are dead to sin, and that is to be the attitude, the perspective, the position of our lives, is that by the blood of Jesus Christ, God declares me to be free from the power of that sin, and therefore I don't have the right to call myself a, as one who's in bondage to sin. Reckon it to be so. How do you reckon it to be so? Because God said it. Inasmuch as I believe that God raised Christ from the dead, I believe that he has given me this power. And therefore, I'm to reckon myself indeed unto, uh, dead unto sin. I love the, 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 the account in John's Gospel of the blind man. I mean, here's this guy that's blind his whole life. He has a quick encounter with Jesus. He receives his sight, and then because of the crowd, he's immediately kind of pulled away, and he doesn't get a good look at the man who healed him. And because this... Great miracles been done, and everybody knew this guy was blind. It starts this big controversy amongst all the religious rulers. And finally, they call this blind man to himself, and they say, tell us about the man who, who you know, healed your blindness. He said, I don't really know. I didn't really see too much. And they said, well, we want you to tell us, is he a sinner or not? Is he right? You know, and they, and they are grilling this guy. And he goes, look, look, look. He goes, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a Bible scholar. He goes, I, don't, I didn't even get a good look at the man. He goes, I know one thing. He says, I was blind, I now see. That's all I know. The man did not stand up in the, in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and say, I am a blind man who now for these past 24 hours have been able to see. But I'm still a blind man. I'm just able to see right now. And hopefully this pattern of sight will continue And I'll be able to come to you 24 hours later and I will say, I am a blind man, but for 48 hours, I have had my sight. He didn't do any of that. He, with definitive faith, I was, I am. And that is what it means to reckon. I know what I was prior to my coming to Jesus Christ. I even know what I would be today if I hadn't come to Christ. What I also know is that in Jesus Christ, I have been set free from those things, and those things no longer define who I am. I am dead to sin 
but I'm alive unto God in Christ, and I'm to reckon it to be so. And I believe that's an important and critical component in our seeing victory in our own lives over the things that once held us, even if we struggle as believers, is that we must reckon it to be so. No, I am free. That chain's been broken. As long as we think that that chain still exists, then we are like the elephant staked to the ground. We do not move. We stay right in the position that we were in. We're being called to move, walk in newness of life, right? And so we're to reckon ourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God. The second thing that Paul tells us that we're to do is in verses 12 and 13, and it revolves around the word yield that's used in verse 13. Notice what he says. He says, let not, and that word let is a word, again, that implies yielding. If you're going to let something happen, then you're going to yield to it. If you're going to force something, you're not yielding, you're pushing. But this is letting. He says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that's your flesh, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye, same idea as letting, your members, that's your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members or your body parts as instruments of righteousness unto God. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, you have been given authority and freedom by the Spirit of Christ to yield yourselves one way or the other in what you're going to do in your actions. We are free moral agents, right? We could leave here today and we could do what we want. God did not make us robots. He's not going to make us go home and read our Bibles and get on, you know, and we could go home and we could do anything we want. He's given the choice up to us. But in the power of the spirit that's in our lives, he has now given us the choice to do what's right and the power to follow through with that. We don't have to obey sin like we once did. Do you remember what it was like when you were in the world? You would have an impulse and what would you do? You'd satisfy it. You were a servant. You had to do whatever that impulse said. And what Paul is saying right now is that you have this new power in Jesus Christ that you can exercise spiritual authority over your own behavior. And you don't have to do what your flesh is dictating you to do. You have the choice whether you're going to yield to the one or to the other. If you want to, you could still go home and you could sin. You have that power. You could yield to the impulses of sin that are in your flesh. Or you could take door number two, which is now yours in Christ, and you could yield to the voice of righteousness, which implores you to do what's right and not to yield to sin. Before Christ, we didn't have that choice. Now we do. Notice the word reign that he used there in um, verse 12. He said, let not sin, therefore, reign. Do you know what it means to reign, R-E-I-G-N? It means to rule. Meaning that there is someone that's going to rule in your life or in my life. We have the choice as to who it's going to be. Whether the flesh is going to dominate and rule our lives and we're going to obey the sin that it demands that we fulfill, or whether we're not going to let the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, rule in our lives that we might serve and obey Him. Someone said one time that there are two people and one throne in the heart. 
Uh, actually, the best way I've heard it put is that there are two, there's two pieces of furniture and two people that live in every heart. There's a cross and there's a throne. And then in, this, in you, there is you, yourself, and there's Christ, if you're a Christian. And always it's like musical chairs. Someone is, is on one or the other. And so what that means is that if yourself is on the throne, ruling and reigning in your life, then that means Christ is still on the cross, where he does not belong. But if Christ is ruling in your life, then where does that put you, by deduction? On the cross. And what are we called to? Take up our cross daily. And so self, sin, is to be on the cross. Jesus is to be on the throne. And we're to let him reign in our mortal bodies. And we have the choice whether or not we're going to do that. So reckon is number one. Choose, yield, is number two. We're to yield ourselves to God, into righteousness and the whole thing. The third thing that Paul tells us that we're to do in seeing freedom take place in our life, it's in verse 14, is that we're to stop making excuses. He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Now, I have that highlighted, underlined, circled, memorized, because that is a declaration of truth. That's not a command. That's a declaration. Do you hear it? He says, sin shall not have dominion over you. In Christ, God is not going to allow something to overpower your life that you can't beat or get past. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Under the law, sin had dominion. But under grace, you have a choice. And God gives you the power not to do it. Somebody said one time, that once you become good at making excuses, that's all you'll ever be good for. And it always stuck with me. Because it's so easy to make excuses, isn't it? Excuses for our behavior, excuses for our nature, excuses for our actions. But what he's saying here is that we don't have an excuse in this because he's given us the power to walk in what we know is right. And so therefore we don't have to make excuses. If we're a slave to sin as a Christian, then we're a slave to sin by choice, not because the sin is too strong for us, because he's saying that the sin shall not have dominion over you. We were having a conversation in the car the other uh, evening about homelessness, homeless people, and, um, and you know, just different things. Actually, it was freezing cold, one of the bitter cold nights that we've had in the past couple of nights, and we saw... Um, you know, someone out on the streets. And so we were kind of discussing this whole thing. And, and I was just sharing with the kids that, you know, in, in my years in ministry and in, in, in the interactions that I've had um, with homeless people, what I have discovered is that the majority, not all, and, and it's, you know, you can't throw everybody in the same basket all the time, but that the majority of homeless people are homeless by choice. Because when you try to help them, <laughs> they don't want the help. <laughs> you know, when you try to, 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 to you know, to, to help them get on their feet and the whole thing, there's something that's happened where it's just too much for them, the responsibility. They, they would rather live in that condition than, than to come out of that condition. And there's a lot of Christians that live in the same way. And in fact, all, that I will say, it's in this, all in the same basket, is that if a Christian is bound by sin, constantly estranged from home, it is by choice. It's because they want to be. Because what the Bible is declaring to you and I right here is that sin shall not have dominion over the believer. It's a, it's a slavery by choice. It's excuses. Number four, if we want to be free from sin, not only are we to reckon, not only are we to yield, not only are we to stop making excuses, but fourthly, 
he says in verses 15 through 18 is that we're to start walking in the right direction. Notice. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? He kind of reiterates the argument that he began with at the beginning of the chapter. He says, God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield, there's that word again, yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now, very simple concept, right? You have two people that, that make a demand on your life. And one tells you to do one thing, and the other tells you to do another thing. Now, if you obey one of those two, then you become that person's servant because you're obeying what that, serv- that master is telling you to do. If that master is sin and sin comes to you and sin says, go and you know, defile yourself, and we do it, we have yielded ourselves to become servants to that sin. However, if another person comes and that person says, no, 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 don't defile yourself, rather turn it off. Or close the door. Or put that down. And we obey that voice, then we have now yielded ourselves to become servants to that voice. We're going to be servants to one or the other. And so we're either servants of sin or servants of righteousness. He says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but that you have obeyed from the heart the form of teaching that was delivered to you, being then made free from sin you became the servants of righteousness, literally the slaves of righteousness. Because we obeyed the voice of righteousness. Because we had power to obey the voice of righteousness, and in yielding to it, we became the servants of it. Now, how do we become the servants of righteousness? We must yield, or obey, or walk in righteousness, right? So we start to step in the direction that we're supposed to go. Now, if you're the elephant that's chained to the the ground and the chain has been broken and you've been granted your freedom, as long as you stay in that position, you aren't free even though you're free because you're staying in the position of bondage. If you want to be free, what do you got to do? You got to move. You got to walk. You have to employ caloric energy and step out of the, st- the, the footprints that you're in and get yourself into another location, but you've been freed and you're now able to do it. And you've been called to do it. You're being bid by another master to come into the freedom. And so if we want to be free, we reckon it, we yield, we stop making excuses, then we go. We start taking steps away from the thing that's holding us captive and holding us in bondage, and we begin walking away from it. And you know what I found is the most amazing thing? Is that with every step you take away from sin, your strength against that sin gets stronger and stronger. The confidence rises up that this doesn't have to have a hold on my life anymore. And the further away from it I get, the stronger my defenses are against it. The thicker the wall can be that separates me from my sin because my distance from it is that much greater. But I'm called to step away from it. I have to be a servant to righteousness. I have to obey. And in the obedience is where I find the blessing. Peter didn't walk on water until he stepped out of the boat. Right? Well, but Lord, you can't walk on water. You can when I tell you to. 
take up your bed, rise up and go home. But I can't get out of this bed. Don't you realize? Why do you think they opened up the roof and lowered me down like this? I've been in this bed. I've been a slave to this bed as long as I've been alive. I can't. No, no. The Son of God told you to stand up and get out of the bed and walk. Peter looked at the lame man. And he said, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And the man didn't say, well, don't you understand? For 38 years I've been in this infirmity. Every day they carry me to beg alms of the people. So just give me some money and let me go buy. No, no, no. The man had power to do what God was calling him to do. He employed the power. He stood up and walked and he was never same. He was changed forever. We have to do what it is that he's called us to do. And in the doing of it, we find that the power is there, supplied by the Spirit, in order that we might be set free from the sin that once held us captive. So we yield ourselves servants to righteousness, and thus we see the freedom happen in our life. And then finally, number five, what Paul tells us here essentially in verses 19 through 22, is he tells us to just take a step back in your mind and look at the outcome of two choices. Right? You go one way, you're going to be at a destination. You go another way, you're going to be at a destination. Just take a step back and consider what those two destinations are. Notice what he says. He says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members, your body parts, servants to uncleanness... And to iniquity, unto iniquity, sin always leads into more sin. Even so now, and there's that word now again, right? It speaks to the present tense. Yield your body parts, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. Okay, do you see that there? There's a path and a destination. The first path is sin, iniquity, unto, where does it lead? Iniquity. Right? He says, yield yourselves unto, for, to, you used to yield yourselves to iniquity, unto iniquity. But now, yield yourselves servants to righteousness, and where does that lead? Unto holiness. Holiness is wholeness. Completeness. In Hebrews chapter 1, describing Jesus Christ, it's actually a quote from the Psalms, but then it's reiterated in Hebrews. It says that God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness because of your holiness. Holiness leads to gladness, wholeness, wholesomeness. For when, verse 20, you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit? Now he's, he's, he's calling us to look. Remember, consider your life. What fruit? Had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? Now think about your old life. Think about what it was like to go to bed not knowing where you were. To be in a stupor. To wake up feeling like you remember feeling like. What fruit did you have when you were given to the lusts of your flesh? And the shame that all those lusts brought with them. What fruit did you have when you lived completely to dominate over other people? To live for money and riches, wealth? What fruit did you have when you filled your life with just more and more things? Did it ever satisfy? What fruit 
Just think about what we were. Think about what you were prior to your coming to Christ. Let me ask you now, what fruit did those things that you are now ashamed of, what real lasting fruit came out of any of those things? There's nothing. There's nothing but misery, right? Shame, destruction of relationships, errors, physical infirmities, health problems. There's no fruit, no lasting fruit in any of those things. For the end of those things is what? Death. That's right. It ends in death. I remember being 18 years old and going with um, my best friend and a couple of other people. We, we lived in Rochester, but we went to New York City for New Year's Eve. I will never, ever, 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 ever do that again. Ever. Why? Ever. <laughs> and it was freezing cold that New Year's. Like bitter, 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 bitter cold. And I remember walking down the street, and we were doing things that we shouldn't be doing, and we were living for things wherein there's no fruit, and the end of those things is death. And as I walked down the side of the road, I saw a homeless man sitting in one of those little alcoves where, you know, there was a storefront, you know, now closed because it was night late, you know, but he was sitting in there wrapped in sleeping bags and blankets and cardboard and um, just laying there, just obviously a homeless person, destitute completely. And I just remember being an unsaved person and hearing a voice, not audible, but it was as though it was, it was that clear. And there was just a tunnel vision focus that came into that person And it came into my heart that if you keep living the way you're living, that's where you end up. That's where the path you're on leads. That's the destination for this road that you're on. Within a year, I was born again (laughs) because I couldn't shake that. In all the things that I was doing and all of my ideals and the way I thought life should be lived and how there should be no authority and I should just be able to, and blah, 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 I knew underneath all of that that the road that I was on leads here and then to the grave. It's death. But now, here's the hope, verse 24, 22. <clears throat> Being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit. Do you see those words? You have your fruit. What's the fruit of the new life? If each one of us were to just take a piece of paper and a pen and just begin to write down the things that we have in our lives now that we know Jesus Christ, that we didn't have nor would we ever have had we not come to Christ, you would run out of paper real soon. You just start, think about your mind, the renewal that's happened in your mind. Think about the freedom and the things that, 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 that he has freed us from in spite of the things that we still struggle with. Think about the stability. I mean, it's amazing to realize we have fruit. There's a ton of fruit. The fruit internally, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the gifts that God has given to us, it's amazing. I often think of this. 
just myself. I look around sometimes. I, I sit at my dining room table. You know, I get that honored seat at the head of my table, and I see three kids on one side and two kids on the other side. No, my wife is on one side, and one of the kids you know, down the other. And, I, and sometimes I look at, and that verse just pops into my head in Isaiah that it says that your your children will be like little olives plants around your table. And I just look, and I go, Oh my goodness. And I look around my house and I go, why, how did I get here? You know, I, I, I don't get, I don't understand how this could possibly be. And the, the, the things that God does, the grace that he gives, where I should be that guy on the street on New Year's Eve wrapped in a sleeping bag. You have your fruit. Unto holiness... And to the end, what's the end destination? Everlasting life. So, Paul says, take a step back. Look at your life from a bird's eye perspective for a minute. And consider the outcome of two paths. You can continue in sin. You have that freedom. He's given you the autonomy and the moral authority to judge and choose for yourself who you're going to yield to, even as a Christian. And you can continue in your sin. But think about what you have and where you're headed if you continue in that path. On the contrary, He's given you power in His Holy Spirit to be free from that sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You do not have to stay on that path. It is completely choice. If you do. On the other hand, there's another path that is life and that leads to eternal life that carries with it much fruit. If you can see that, if you can just see those two paths and their outcomes, he's saying, listen, employ the power that the Holy Spirit has given to you and walk in that newness of life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, and it's a gift, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have a part to play in being free from sin. I ask you, by way of application and close this morning, which Christian are you as you hear the voice of verses 1 and 2? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid. Are you the one that says, oh, I love my, I, I want to just keep sinning and I want grace to just be so that I can sin. I don't want to be free. Or maybe perhaps the one that is filled with hope. I hate my sin. I hate it. I don't want to live in it. I see what it does, what it's done, what it's doing, and I want to be free from it. Listen, what Paul is declaring to you and I is that there's power to be free from that sin. Our part, reckon, yield, stop making excuses, start walking in the right direction, and consider the end of the two paths. The one is to death, the other is to life. When we get into chapter 7, I believe it will be January 6th when we are there, God's going to tell us his part. This chapter was our part. Chapter 7 is his part. As he talks about 
the Spirit further working in our lives to set us free from sin.